nice to see some red in the congregation on Pentecost. A number of years ago, when I was in the Diocese of California, Christchurch Sausalito, one of my colleagues, Carolyn Fairless, who was the rector of the Holy Family Church in Half Moon Bay, was uh, at the coffee hour in her parish, and she was helping uh, a little girl paint her nails red. And as she was doing this, the little girl said to Carolyn, you know, God loves this color. And she said, well, how do you know that? And she said, because red is the color of God's spirit. There's a great book that was written a number of years ago now by the famous child psychiatrist Robert Coles, who taught for years at Harvard. And he wrote a book called The Spiritual Life of Children. And the book is replete with stories not dissimilar to that one. So sometimes we should listen to our kids when they say stuff. This is Pentecost, the capstone of the great 50 days of Easter, the celebration by the church of the descent of the Holy Spirit in the upper room in Jerusalem and the consequences of that for the future of the Church of God. You know, we talked about this at the sermon discussion group, and it's important to say that, for what I'm going to say in my sermon later, that uh, the Holy Spirit wasn't not present until Pentecost. In some sense, the Spirit of God coming on Pentecost rebooted the community. And I mention this because the apostolic preaching that took place in the Gospels during the earthly ministry of Jesus, one presumes, was animated by the Holy Spirit. And so God's Spirit is present and has been. And one of the affirmations of the Savior of the world was that if we had consulted our sacred literature, we would have discovered that the things now that stand in bold relief to us were always there. So you and I can have the confidence that the Spirit of God has been at work from the beginning. But today we celebrate the descent of the Holy Spirit because it provides us the opportunity to say some theological things about the work of the Spirit and how each one of us both is a beneficiary of the Holy Spirit of God, but a fiduciary of the Holy Spirit of God, that we are stewards of this Spirit as we move forward. Father Thomas Keating speaks in his wonderful book, The Mystery of Christ, The Liturgy as Spiritual Experience, he refers to all of the great days and seasons in this book. He says, the grace of Christmas is to know Christ in his humanity, 
The grace of Epiphany is to know Christ in his divinity. The grace of Holy Week is to know him in his emptying and dying. The grace of Easter is to know him in his triumph over sin and death. The grace of the Ascension is to know him as the cosmic Christ. It is to know the glorified Christ who has passed not into some geographical location, but into the heart of all creation. And the grace of Pentecost is to know that Christ is all in all and to know his spirit, the ongoing promise of the Father. So in my sermon today, I'm going to preach on the reading from the book of Acts, the, the, the story of the descent of the Holy Spirit on the disciples and apostles in the upper room, and then to say a brief word to you about one of my favorite lines in John's Gospel. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And maybe that has some connection to the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church and in the hearts of all faithful people. Remember, uh, the same person that wrote Luke's Gospel wrote the book of Acts. It's a two-volume set. So Luke is speaking in his Gospel about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. And in the book of Acts, he is speaking about the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in the church. And so today, we have the story of the descent of the Holy Spirit coming down on the disciples and the apostles, and they come out and now start to speak. And they speak in a Galilean dialect, no doubt. You may be surprised, but these days in biblical scholarship, particularly the study of the languages and everything, there are some scholars who are up all night with this stuff, but they could sit and discourse with you for a long, long time on the Galilean dialect. So think about this. They've come out and they're speaking in the Galilean dialect and everybody understands them. People from all over the place, thanks to Cheryl Lawrence who got all the names right. <laughs> so this is a story not about people coming down from the upper room speaking in tongues or speaking in some exotic language. The technical term for this is glossolalia. Let's all say that. Glossolalia. Yeah, it's a great word, isn't it? Yeah. But that's not what was happening. This is a story about universal understanding. And the, and the people that would have heard this read to them or read it themselves for the first time would have said, you know what Luke is talking about here is the reversal of the consequences that occurred at the Tower of Babel. Do you know the story of the Tower of Babel? Where the people were going to build a tower that went all the way up to God? We've discovered a number of these in the ancient Near East. They're called ziggurats. We've dug them up. Ziggurat. Not, it's not one of those dining guides. <laughs> Hotel, no. 
It's a tower in the ancient Near East. And they thought they would do this. And so God, because of their pride, because of their belief that they were the center of the universe, confused their speech. This is also in the book of Genesis, a story about why do people speak different languages? It attempts to answer that question. And so what happened on Pentecost was that everybody could understand everybody. Now you and I know that there are still all these languages and we can't understand everybody in the world. But this is a story about God's reconciling work. The unitive activity of the Holy Spirit of God. The ability to understand now that the mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. That is the mission of the church. A lot of people get the mission of the church confused with go therefore into the world baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and know that I am with you always even unto the end of the ages. That's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. And so the unitive power of the Holy Spirit which, as Father Keating has said, now has become universally present in the cosmos, including in the hearts of all faithful people. God coming from within to enlighten and strengthen us provides us with the ability to seek that unity to which we are called and for each one of us to practice the ways and the means to be able to do that in the world. It isn't to be the possessors of some mystical force or power that permits us to speak in ecstatic languages. I'm not poo-pooing that, by the way. Many great Christian people have spoken in tongues. Most of the ones have never spoken about it when they did it. It might surprise you to know that one of the great tongue speakers was St. Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits. And nobody would have known that unless he read his personal diaries after he died. But what we're talking about here is universal understanding. And we're talking about God's unitive work in the world. Dr. John McQuarrie, the former Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Oxford, who I knew when I was in seminary, said that we need to understand the third person of the Trinity as what I call unitive being. It's the force in the creation that allows us to become unified, to become reconciled, to be reconcilers, to allow the law of love to be the operative principle in all human interaction, the work of the Spirit of God. So the great question is, if this Holy Spirit is present to each of us, within us, within the community of faith, with all people of goodwill in the world, who seek to be the best human beings they can be, and to transform the world into a place where it is easier for people to be good, how would we know whether we were making any progress? Well, one of the things that we talk about in the life of the church 
is something called the fruits of the Spirit. All Christian people receive them at their baptism. They're present in forms in other people who are not Christians. There are many lists of fruits of the Spirit. Here's one of the most famous. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are about the development, the formation, and the maturing of the human character. About a long time ago now, Mother Morrison and I took a class at the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley that was taught by John Sanford, who's an Episcopal priest and a famous Jungian therapist. It was about dreams, I remember that. Uh, one of the things he said doesn't have anything to do with this sermon that I loved the most was somebody raised their hand and said, um, do you think reincarnation is true? And he said, oh, I hope it isn't. You know? I, I gave up ask, or talking to anybody in any parish I served about that. I don't want to hear the answer from any of you about what you think about reincarnation. I'm not interested. But, you know, I liked what John Sanford said about it. But the thing that is opposite to this sermon is, he said at one point in one of his lectures, character is living your life according to certain principles. So the Spirit of God is intimately involved with the development of character and the way you live your life. So if you think, how do I check on whether I'm making any progress, listen to this list and see whether or not you've done better in any of these areas. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Sometimes it's uh, you know one step forward and two steps back. But these qualities expressed in relationship, have transformative power. Spiritual power. Or as in some circles in parts of this country, Holy Ghost power. So they can transform your life. So check on it once in a while, you know, and maybe you'll see that the Spirit of God is operating we can see that the ability to express these gifts or fruits of the Spirit must be understood within the context of our own personal freedom and that their authenticity is a function of the spontaneous character of their expression. The infusing of the Holy Spirit at baptism makes it possible to express these gifts. It does not make robots out of us, but provides the space for us to grow in the Spirit and the knowledge that the Spirit does not or did not come just once. Again, Father Keating, the Spirit is always present yet always coming. That is because the divine actuality becomes present in a new way each time we move to a new level of spiritual awareness. 
So we go to the gospel. And Jesus is speaking now to the disciples and the apostles as he's about to leave them. And he has the wonderful line, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. This is a wonderful line in any conversation in sort of lofty theological circles about fixed ways of understanding uh, the way we think and believe about God and Jesus and the world, about morals and ethics, about the way we understand the fullness of our humanity. And the Savior tells us here, I have many things to, to say to you still, but you cannot bear them now. So why is this important? It's important because the way in which we have understood living within the power of the Spirit is that we are able to see in every age the ways and the means to appropriate the deep things of Christian faith and belief. Father Raymond Brown, who was one of the great biblical scholars of the 20th century, says, interpreting to each generation the contemporary significance of what Jesus has said and done is the task. Now, how do we do that? We do that through our pastoral experience. Not just pastors, but people listening to one another's stories, hearing about their lives, believing that their personal history, our personal history, is part of the history of salvation. And so if we believe that the church needs to move in a direction that appears to be different than now, it flows out of us using the third leg of the three-legged stool that we believe is authoritative for Anglican Christians, the Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. And by virtue of that, we come up against the issues that the church has always struggled with that we can't bear now. And the pastoral experience of the church says, you know, we might need to take a look at this in a way now that it flows out of our common life together in the spirit. How does the spirit move? The spirit does not move once. It moves more than once. And if you reflect about your own life, you will see and understand that that's precisely what has happened. You know, a huge number of people in this country, if you believe the people who do studies about this, have had what we might call spiritual experiences. And as a result of that, it's not a hard sell, even in an age of huge religious skepticism, to believe that somehow the spirit is at work. And people who would not call themselves religious would say that I have had those spiritual experiences. And by, by, as a result of that, my uh, humanity has been altered and changed. 
So I always read this sentence in today's gospel and think about what are the things that we cannot bear now. And believing, as the colleague said that Father Emerson sang, that somehow the Spirit of God will teach us and lead us into all truth. None of us can know the truth, but all of us should be seeking the truth. So this week, give thanks for the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. Check on the whole thing. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See how you're doing. And see uh, how now, through your own spiritual understanding, uh, you can make a difference in the world with God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. Amen.